Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm here with Audrey Waters, virtually here with Audrey Waters. It's the 24th of February, and this is the Hack Education Week podcast, weekly podcast. Yes. Hi. Hi, Audrey. Hello. You were uncharacteristically quiet this week. Well, this week was... um I've been traveling. I've actually been in the Bay Area this week, so having lots of sort of meetings with folks and actually not getting a lot of writing done. Although I'm sitting here probably looking at a weekend's worth of blog posts that I will be churning out instead. So, Oh, good. <laughs> well, so your first post was a little bit self-reflective. Yes. It had to do with uh, the question I asked you was uh, why, would, why should anybody care about a scratch for HTML5? Right. And I didn't mean that question critically, and I hope you didn't take it critically. No, but, but, but it was a good one. It. Yeah, it was a good one for, I think, to think about. And I mean, obviously, as someone who runs a blog that I hope people read, it was good in terms of thinking about, you know, thinking about how, the, how some of the coverage of my blog will change. But I think it, that it sort of gave me pause to think, too, about what exactly sort of how am I framing how am I framing some of these questions and what really do we mean when we use this what's really sort of a shorthand that I've used um, in my conversations with Mozilla in terms of what does it mean to build a scratch for HTML5. So it seems like that exists on two levels. One is I actually enjoyed reading your notes from the interviews. But I think sort of the deeper question is what's the value and importance of this kind of a tool Mm-hmm. And I want to play the devil's advocate, right? So you know how I feel about a lot of these things. But if I'm thinking about web programming, I don't really – I'm not a car guy. I don't really know the nuts and bolts of a car, but I use the car to drive around. Why would I? Why should I know more of the nuts and bolts of the web? Well, I think that um, we're sort of seeing this shift where we're, we're – where the importance of having – you know, this is importance of – web literacy and I think that we've ta- we talk a lot about tech literacy in terms of being a user of technology and I think that you know that technology has, has be- is becoming such an important part of how we uh, how we work, how we create, um, how we do business, how we participate in civic life and social life but I think that if, if we're only thinking about how we use technology and we're not sort of knowledgeable about how, we can how we can build this technology. I think that um, I think that we won't we won't be sort of we won't be taking advantage of of the tools to our full potential. And I think that you know as we saw a, a month or so ago with the discussions around SOPA, I think that the stakes are very high in terms of sort of losing potentially losing what has been become this really powerful space for for um, open community participation. Whether whether we think of that in terms of um, learning or whether we think of that um, just in terms of sort of information sharing. Have you come to any conclusions about the Mozilla project? Has anything filtered up for you? Um, not yet. I've got I have a bunch of conversations sort of lined up in the in the next few weeks. That I'm sort of this is sort of looking at my schedule um, because we'll be we'll be at South by Southwest. EDU in a couple of weeks too. Um, there, I'm doing a lot of conferences in the next few weeks. But I just actually got off the phone with um, Ryan Seahorse, who's the founder of Code Now, which is a program that you and I have talked about before. He's working with 
disadvantaged youth in the DC area and helping them get up and running with programming. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to talk with Ryan because I think, I think too often, particularly when engineers build uh, programming, learn to program tools, too often we sort of start we sort of start the conversation way too far down the line. And so sort of how do you how do we get people sort of up and running and interested and even interested in wanting to learn um, wanting to learn programming or in this case sort of web building. Um, and I sort of wanted to circle back around and talk with Ryan again about the things that he's doing to to make it work in his community. And I think one of the things that he stressed is that it's really not just I mean, and I think we'd know this already. It's really not, it really can't just be a tool. It can't just be a matter of um, having a web-based program or a, or a piece of software or even something like um, like the Lego robotics, you know, a hardware solution. There has to be a multi-pronged approach in building, building sort of peer-to-peer -peer learning and a social support network and mentorship um, and, you know, access to the tools. Um, so... But, I mean, I don't think I don't think that anyone here was sort of thinking that sort of, you know, build a build a build a tool and magically all of us will have sort of uh, reach web literacy um, enlightenment. But I think it was a good reminder that this has to be a multi-pronged approach. I think. So I'm imagining that you're not getting a lot of um, the ignoring Papert fallacy here, right? right. Are, are most of these folks pretty aware of that material? Well, I mean, this is, of course, this is the bias of the researcher here, that I'm, I probably am purposefully, at this stage, reaching out to people who I know, uh, who, who I know would pass my Papert test. <laughs> um, so, so I think that the conversations are probably skewed in that way, that these are people who are, um, I think, thinking, thinking deeply about about learning rather than I was thinking superficially about uh, shiny tools. Okay, so TextYard open sources their code. And one enterprising student says he's thinking about building on top of that code a textbook exchange site. But I had a hard time seeing sort of revolutionary change from this. What's the what's the importance of TextYard doing open sourcing their code? Well. I think that the TextYard was a company, and they've actually decided to move on to a different project. But they were a startup that wanted to build a, a little tool so that students could sort of do some price price comparison, so that when they knew what courses they were taking at their university, they could um, you know pick fill out their which what university they were at, what courses they were at, and this little web based interface would tell them where to find the where to find their books for the cheapest. Um, and I think, as most college students are, would be quick to tell you, frankly, m oftentimes the campus bookstore, particularly if we're talking a new textbook, the campus bookstore is not the cheapest place to find your books. Um, and so it was really just a tool to sort of make it easier to do do some consumer research. Um, but but that data is actually quite hard. To, or the, the university bookstores don't necessarily make it easy to get to that data. Oftentimes they don't offer their own web interface to even let you see what their prices are, look like. And so this, this team has sort of built a number of web scraping tools, um, which is a pretty common practice, I think, to sort of be able to, to, be able to harvest the data from a website um, in order to find the material so that they could offer it up to others. Um, and I think that it's, you know, I think that we're, we're starting to really, I think, 
um, more and more people are recognizing that all of these discussions around student textbooks, whether it's the move to digital textbooks or the decisions that students are making not to purchase textbooks, um, that that price is still this huge is still this huge factor, and really pricing is not transparent. And I think the hope of the TextYard folks by open sourcing the tools is that someone else is going to sort of pick up this work and move it forward in an effort to sort of force um, force the campus bookstores, um, force the publishers to be a lot more transparent with how with how pricing works. So essentially, if I remember correctly, there are five or six kind of major storefronts these that most universities or colleges used for their textbooks. So what TextJar did was to figure out how to scrape the data from those major players. Right. Is that right? Right. And so uh, there are other cases that you've talked about with uh, scraping data from school websites, right? The one school and the mm -hmm. mobile app. Um, I think what I like about it is this, sort of the idea that this can be done independent of the institutions. But I'm having a hard time sort of seeing the scope. Is, is there the potential for a lot more than, than we're seeing now? Well, I think that I'm, I like it that it, I mean, on one hand, I like it very much that, that people are doing this independent of the institutions. But on the other hand, I think it is a good reminder to these institutions um, that they, you know, they could probably open up data. They could probably have an API and make some of this data accessible and, and still allow students or, and, you know, students and startups to sort of build uh, build products on top of their data, but at least so that they would sort of be able to sort of see what people were doing with data rather than uh, rather than just um, leave it to to web scraping. Although that felt like kind of a stretch for me, meaning they would have to sort of voluntarily say we're willing to actually give have our prices be negatively impacted. Uh, felt like that would be hard for somebody in a management position at a university bookstore to. To promote well I think that I mean I think that the that the that one of the problems with price transparency too though is I don't even know that professors are that aware of the pricing and I think that the the pressure is certainly I mean certainly you know noticing that your university bookstore is consistently overcharging what Amazon uh, what Amazon offers is one thing but I think for professors to know too that the that the textbooks that they're offering um, how those even compare to other to other options as well. I mean, I think that the that the students are in the dark, and I think that the professors are in the dark, and I think that that's a problem. Well, the students aren't too much in the dark because you cite in your in your weekly summary that fewer than sixty percent of them are buying the latest edition. So I figure they you know they know they're they don't want to pay the full big bucks, right? Right. I mean, and so I think that this is what makes it sort of an interesting thing to sort of help crack open the tools, uh, because I, you know, and again, I think that it's partially it's partially about the students, but I think it's also how can we help better help how can we help better sort of educate the professors too. I mean, what are you know, uh, how can we make sure that sort of professors are choosing good options and affordable options for their students as well? I mean, and why you know why would you say by the ninth edition of the Intro to Biology textbook when you're really using the same first three chapters that are also in the sixth edition and the seventh edition and the eighth edition. Uh, you would have liked to give a talk uh, this week in Arkansas, the TCAL um, conference, and I put up a slide with um, 
Donald Trump and a picture of textbook saying, fire your textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> You're fired. Okay. So uh, also interesting in that book in, industry study group was that um, there's been uh, an increase in rentals, but no increase in mobile device usage. And I think that you've been saying that for a while. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that, you know, you, we hear so much excitement in certain circles about the possibility of digital of digital textbooks sort of, um, you know, liberating liberating students from you know from carrying around heavy books that they'll be more uh, more affordable and clearly students clearly students even if they're not opting to buy the brand new edition they're 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 really not they're really not using their mobile devices and they're. They're owners of mobile devices, but they aren't using their mobile devices for to consume educational content. Okay, so Kindertown creates an educational app store within the Apple Marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt like the discovery of those apps was very dependent on one person. Did I read that right? No, there's well, there's a there's a team of that they they have a team of educators who help um, uncover and rate and assess assess them but it, it definitely is a team their team curating them as opposed to crowdsourcing um uh you know sort of crowdsourcing uh reviews or or other ways of of uncovering um quality uh quality app content so are we do you think we're going to see more of this because it certainly feels as though uh, that's a great start, but wouldn't you, you wouldn't you want educators and parents and students to be able to participate in the review process? Um, I think that that's a really interesting question, and I should note that the, um, the after I published this this blog post on Kindertown, in which I made the argument that um, you know that that discovery was this huge problem, um, Apple it was actually announced that Apple has purchased a, a startup called Chomp. Which did the same sort of a similar sort of process, which was it had it was an app within the app store that helped surface and make recommendations on on apps for you. Um, but but I think one of the challenges I think when we think about um, educational content and um, turning it over to sort of a broad review process is, I, I mean, I worry about sort of replicating what I what I call sort of um, it's like the the phenomenal failure of Yelp reviews in which you, it's actually very hard to judge much by the, the, the star rating and the, and the write-up in a Yelp review. Um, and, you know, you, you can go to, you can pick one of your favorite restaurants and the reviews are sort of all over the place. And I mean, people could say sort of like, well, it was the lousiest meal I ever ate because, you know, the person sitting next to me smelled like cigarette smoke. And it's like, well... I don't, that's meaningless. And so I think that, you know, I think when we think about how do we, how do, I mean, I think it's a challenge. How do we rate and review educational content that, um, that isn't, that doesn't fall prey to sort of the, those sorts of reviews that you see already in the iTunes store and that you see in Amazon. Interesting. Um, my first thought was, has Google done anything in this area with their own app marketplace? No, and the, their own app marketplace is is just as bad. And I think that um, I think that uh, I think Kindertown it was interesting. Kindertown uh, said that they were not that interested in offering a similar service for the Android market, which I think is an interesting indication of where 
people see educational app content, but they were perhaps interested in thinking about a web, um, a, a process to review web apps. Um, huh. But but I think that the um, both the educational, uh, the Chrome web app store and the Android market, I think they suffer from the same silly five star, you know, silly sort of rating system. So I didn't miss any posts, right? I mean, there were just those three before we get to the yep. weekly. Well, the um, I just posted one that you probably didn't see about the release today of the New York City teacher data. Oh, um, no, I think I – well, is this the one, the Bill Gates one? Did you do a f fuller story on I did, it? I did do a fuller story on it, yeah. Well, so let's start there, and you can tell me what I didn't see. Um, what is value-added rating? Why is Bill Gates opposed to it, and why does he actually sound somewhat progressive? Well, I should say Bill Gates is not opposed to value. I mean, Bill Gates is one of these folks who has been a big proponent of value-added, the value-added assessment. And to explain that, what that is, it's, um, it's, it's a way of purportedly measuring the impact that a teacher has on a student by looking at students' test scores and sort of having a predictive model that will say how well you think uh, a student will perform in the next year's uh, standardized tests. And if a, teach if a student does better or worse than what you've predicted, that's the value add of a teacher. That's the impact that a teacher has had, for better or worse, on a student's performance. And so this value added measurement has been something that a lot of quote, education reformers like Bill Gates have said that we need to implement in order to identify good teachers and bad teachers. And of course, you know, and, and oftentimes too, sort of pay good teachers more and fire the bad teachers. Um, it, and didn't sound, it, it didn't sound like that was his position in the editorial. Is it possible he's actually changed his position? His position in the editorial is that the New York City School District um, today, after, I should say, lengthy, lengthy legal battles, has released the names of 18,000 uh, teachers in the city, English and math teachers, released their names, their individual names, and their rankings based on this methodology. And so Gates is questioning that process. So it's one thing to sort of have um, a, a, a number of methods by which we will assess what constitutes a an effective teacher. And I would say that, I would say actually, he has gotten a lot more nuanced, Bill Gates has become a lot more nuanced in what he thinks that looks like um, in terms of, even in terms of sort of peer to peer review, um, classroom observation. Um, so he does want there to be multiple ways of assessing uh, teacher effectiveness, but he's quite opposed to this notion of releasing individuals' names um, to appear in the New York Times, uh, which the New York Times plans to release these teachers' names um, to the public. He does not think that, that that has anything to do at all with helping move this conversation forward in identifying uh, effective teaching. Yeah, and certainly he seems to call out specifically that shaming just doesn't help anybody. Right. So it seems, I mean, right now, the, made, the main proponents of, of value-add um, and of making this data publicly available are Arne Duncan, uh, Joel Klein, the former uh, city school chancellor who now works for Rupert Murdoch's News Corps, um, Stephen Brill, who famously wrote about the rubber rooms in New York, um, and Mayor Mike Bloomberg.
So it's not the case that somebody's wanting us to see this data in order to show how absurd it is, but they actually feel like this is valuable information. They think that, and I mean, I should say, I, I think that most most parents would do want to, you know, I think that that's a, that it is something that parents are, are, are concerned about. Like, how, you know, how do you know if your students, if your child is attending a quote, good school? How do you know if you have a good teacher? Um, I think that that is something that parents want, are interested in knowing. And I would say, um, I would say parents have a right to know um, how well, uh, how well students perform in a, and teachers perform in a school. But I would say that using what is no doubt a really flawed tool um, and then making, having the sort of public um, sort of public exposure of people's names is really not about having a smart conversation about improving school uh, the American school system uh, LA, so, LA did this a couple years ago the LA Times right um, I remember yeah well so I'll just refer people to Dennis Litke's book uh, the big picture in which he has two pages of questions parents can go ask the school to actually find out how well the school is performing <laughs> So two Canadian universities, what is this about? Emailing a link to a copyrighted paper is the same as photocopying it? Well, there there are a number of pieces of legislate, legislation circling um, governments all over the world right now that have to do with copyright treaties and um, copyright, um, copyright law. And... The, um, this past week to uh, the University of Western Ontario and the University of Toronto, two of, two of Canada's sort of largest universities, signed a deal with the government saying that any time a student or professor emailed a link to a piece of copyrighted material, that that, that was the same as photocopying. And so copyright, um, there should be a charge for sort of... Uh, of similar sort of charge that you'd have to get for copyright clearance to use copyrighted material in the classroom. So there'll be a blanket per student per, uh, per student per year charge for those universities. And furthermore, they will be monitoring the email of uh, faculty and students to make sure uh, to sort of monitor for compliance. So scary on scary and stupid oh my on gosh. a number of levels. So is this related to the way in which Canada addressed the music piracy issue, uh, where there was a certain charge on top of CDs that was intended to cover copying? Are, are they trying to um, build off of that model? I think it's, I'm not sure if it's directly related to that or if it's related to the ACTA treaty that, um, that uh, I think, that, again, I think it is sort of connected to the publishing industry and the music and film industry, much like SOPA here in this country, um, of, I think, sort of cracking down on new technologies that some of these industries believe uh, are violating, violating copyright. And in the meantime, sort of um, undermining, sort of, well, undermining logic at, at the very least. Fascinating. Okay, I loved the idea of an iTunes competitor. Uh, in this case, Learning Hub, but I was surprised that Samsung was behind this. Does, is, is there any history here that I should know? Yeah, I, there are very few details, and Samsung is, will purportedly uh, sort of release this, unveil this. There's the big um, Mobile World Congress next week in Europe, um, 
in the Netherlands, I believe. And they'll, they'll be releasing more information. And I've actually asked on Twitter a couple of times if, um, if, if anyone sort of has more information. I'm very curious to see um, which institutions decide to participate in, in an iTunes U competitor. Of course, Samsung does have the Galaxy tab, which appears at the moment, um, I suppose if you don't count the Kindle Fire, that is probably the most popular of the Android tablets. But it is interesting that this is a Samsung move and not an Android move. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, anything uh, that you that we should know about Blackboard's Dev Ed? Um, <laughs> hmm. um, let's. See. Well, so this is. I think this is this is a trend to pay attention to in terms of um, for-profit companies stepping in to help offer remediation. Uh, classes for college students that come come to campus ill-prepared, unprepared for um, the kind of uh, the kinds of courses that they'd need to take in order to graduate. Um, sort of statistically, um, supposedly we're seeing more and more college students um, enter school who aren't ready to take sort of what would be, for example, sort of 100 level math. And so they have to do a bunch of remediation classes in order to be ready to take the, the classes that they need the credits that they need to graduate. But isn't it, it's, you know, a lot of these classes now are getting farmed out to blended learning and online learning for profits. Um, and so Blackboard is teaming up with K-12 um, in order to deliver this, to have an option to sort of deliver these classes, these remedial classes uh, to campuses. So I got noticed last week that Blackboard is closing down my f final consulting work with them. So as of uh, the beginning of March, I won't have to dance around Blackboard stores anymore. Okay. Um, Data Wind has only shipped 10,000 out of a 100,000 unit order yeah. for these low-cost Indian tablets that was potentially going to be a million-piece order. Right. Um, quality level isn't uh, very high, but no huge surprise because of the below $50 price, even maybe even a $35 price. Mm -hmm. But um, it still kind of feels like if you only ship 10,000 units, something else is really wrong. Yeah, um, sort of several different reports um, in regards to this project. And the, sort of the, Indi the Indian government is, is sort of underwriting. They're subsidizing a lot of this, a lot of this work, too. But Datawind, the, the company that's been responsible for sort of manufacturing these low-cost tablets, has clearly been unable, unable to build and deliver them. Looks like the Indian government might be looking for other suppliers now. Um, but is also recognizing that they might have to, uh, there might have to be some wiggle room on that price point. That I mean, as you as you said, when you've got a thirty five dollar tablet, um, you've got a thirty five dollar tablet. Uh, ISTE says they're closing their Second Life presence. I don't think that's any huge surprise. But why is ISTE so absent from all of these ed tech discussions that are going on? Uh, <laughs> this is a trick question. Um, <laughs> no, is it a trick question? No, well, I suppose, I mean, in disclosure of people that don't know, I did work for ISTE for um, not quite two years. But uh, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that this is, this is something that, you know, I think that this is a really good question. And I wonder how much ISTE and, and other long-standing long education technology organizations um, are are sort of more interested in what the big 
education corporations like Pearson are up to than they are thinking around the margins uh, where some of the most innovative things are happening. And it feels, I mean, I think that Second Life, um, not to sort of offend anyone who's a fan of Second Life, I think that in a virtual world is certainly an interesting place um, for learning. But I think that, you know, I think that it's, it's sort of, in some ways it feels very symbolic of, of not paying attention to where sort of where other things are going and investing in the big and the old um, rather than taking taking some risk to to be a part of the new. Yeah, to Isti's credit, they've been so supportive of the Bloggers Cafe and Niju Blogger Con, which is now Social Ed Con. <clears throat> but I think they put a lot of they don't really put any money into those, but they certainly put a lot of time and effort and, and money into this Second Life piece. And I don't know that I could have predicted. I I was never a huge Second Life fan because of the hardware requirements. Right. I had a hard time seeing, you know, broader adoption. But I, you know, that one I can kind of, you know, understand the the process that took place because there were so many people drinking the Kool Aid and so many who were excited about it. But I am just sort of baffled by the lack of participation in these other discussions. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if it's something to do with social media. That I don't, I mean, I don't see SC having a big presence there. No, they don't. But I also, it just doesn't feel like they're proactively getting, I, I just don't even read quotes by people from SD when a big tech story comes out. And maybe I'm missing them, but feels like they haven't taken a leadership role at a, at a time when they could. And maybe that's just the, the difficulty of being a large organization that now has all kinds of stakeholders and they might worry about taking a position that wasn't the standard one. Right. Okay, so what is the school of data? So this is, um, so this is a new initiative um, that the Open Knowledge Foundation and Peer-to-Peer University are exploring. And I think it's a recognition that data science has become a very hot new career and that we don't necessarily have sort of folks who are trained, uh, trained in data science, which is sort of a little bit, it's sort of a little bit statistics. It's a little bit engineering, but when it comes to computer programming, it's actually computer programming oftentimes with massive data sets at the sort of scale, again, that requires a specific sort of programming knowledge. Um, and so I think that it's a, that the two organizations are sort of coming together to think about ways that they can offer an informal learning environment with, um, based on the, on the PDPU model, um, an informal learning environment where they can help build out a community of, of data scientists, people sort of trained in the thinking and in the skills necessary to, to, uh, to work with these data sets in, an, in, a, uh, in an intelligent and meaningful way. It sure feels like we're going to learn a lot about the world from big data. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, this is tangential, but there was a story in the New York Times this week about Target and how its marketing company now can predict if you're pregnant before you've sort of told other people based on your shopping purchases. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, I, I will say one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time 
is this book called Grouped by the guy who helped start Google Plus and now works at Facebook. And using that data to kind of look at how we interact socially. And I really enjoy uh, hearing those conclusions and kind of mapping them against um, how, how people actually seem to be acting. Um, I had a kind of a mixed reaction. I didn't really drill down too far. But this National Education Startup Challenge, challenging students to build projects for education, I couldn't decide if that was liberating or exploitative. <laughs> That's a, I'm not sure. I mean, I the there actually aren't a lot of details about this, and this is part of a larger. I mean, there have been a number of efforts under the Obama administration, what it's calling its Challenge.gov platform, in which it it is asking the community at large to sort of help build the apps to solve their own questions. I mean, earlier, I guess it was last year, they asked uh, university students to sort of help help. How can we help build tools to help combat um, sexual harassment and rape, sexual assault on campus. Um, and I think that that's a good example of how you can, how, the peop- how those, sorts of, those sorts of things aren't necessarily going to be solved, um, certainly by the, by the free market. Um, and it's sort of taking some real cultivation of the people who are most impacted and help support them in building the tools. In the case, in this case, this National Education Startup Challenge, it doesn't quite I mean, in some ways it feels so broad. Um, it doesn't quite feel like it's the same sort of small directed um, uh, set of problem owners with an easy to identify or easy to build sort of goal. It's very loose. I mean, how do we help, how do we help make people like middle school better? I don't know. Is there an app that will do that? <laughs> I, I see you making another one of those little cartoony things. What are they called? <laughs> Those, those little videos, <laughs> um, those with, little videos. Yeah, I don't remember what they're Whatever called. It is. Yeah. Uh, so intern match is going to do a Google Hangout event. Um, has Google Hangout changed enough that you can do a, a big event? They um, they have a thing that's still in private beta called Google on Air, and it allows it still allows the sort of ten people to participate in video chat with each other, but it's li- it's sort of live streamed. To YouTube. In fact, I think President Obama held a hangout a couple of weeks ago, and so specially select a group of ten folks could appear in the video chat with him and ask him questions directly. But then it was sort of live streamed elsewhere, and that's what Intern Match is sort of taking advantage of this. And it's actually um, Intern Match is a I like Intern Match a lot. I think that they're they're a, a startup originally out of Seattle that a group of students again that have sort of set figuring out a way to sort of solve their own problems and recognizing that the campus recruitment process is really broken. And it's broken if it's broken if you don't want a job at Goldman Sachs. I mean, that's usually who are at, you know, who are at campus recruiting and internship events. So if you, if you want to work in a, at a nonprofit, for example, um, it's hard to find internships. But it's also broken if you don't sort of if you're not in the know. Like if you don't have connections to the people that are going to tell you the sort of secret information that will help you land an internship at Google. And so internship map internship intern matches they're just sort of peeling back some of the secrecy and their their day-long hangout is going to give students an opportunity to well, for example, ask Google those pointed questions which is sort of how do you get, you know, what happens at an engineering interview at at Google? What's it like, really? I love that. 
Do you, can you get me on that list for the private beta? Yeah. Come yeah. on. I'll, 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 you know, yeah, just, I'll pull my strings. We said, we've only said nice things about Google. Wait, have we said any nice things about Google? <laughs> I did say their Android store was sort of crappy, so. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. <laughs> Something else I really liked was um, this hackathon in Boston, building an openly licensed computer science textbook. I really, really like this idea. I think this is a great idea this too. Great idea so this too. is an this, this is, is Open an Education, Education Week. Education Week. Um, instead of doing a hackathon, um, doing a hackathon they'll, be building a textbook. they'll be building a textbook. So I was thinking of you know there have got to be a million other things you could do. In that format, you know, besides textbooks, but just all kinds of ways of helping do valuable things by gathering together in that kind of forum. I think so. And that it's not, I mean, I think that this is, I think that we're going to see, I mean, I love the hackathon model for precisely that, that it brings together uh, to folks, you know, to hack together a solution, which, you know, is can be quick and dirty, but can be profoundly sort of subversive and brilliant and I think that we shouldn't just see hackathon as hackathons as being something that a bunch of sort of young male programmers do and nor should it be just just about building a business it should be about solving a yeah. problem I love that I want to keep playing with it what are the golden monkey awards <laughs> well this is one of uh, one of the startups that I picked as my favorite startups of 2011. This is Launchpad Toys. They have this wonderful app Toontastic which lets kids create animated narrated videos. And coinciding with the Oscars this weekend, uh, Launchpad is holding their own um, Golden Monkey Awards where they'll be um, awarding the uh, awarding things to kids who've built some of the best the best animations on the on the site, and actually, they're they're um, terrific. If you have time to sort of have a look at at the at the at some of these videos, they are wonderful. How fun! Schoology gets a million dollar investment. Yes. Code Hero gets two hundred thousand from Kickstarter. What's the difference? <laughs> well. Uh, uh, I think the the difference is one uh, one was crowdsourced by a bunch of people that chipped in anything from a dollar to a couple thousand dollars to to help get this video game built, and the other is uh, comes as a as an investment from uh, from a for profit school in Malaysia. But I think that uh, the I think the Schoology's in, Schoology is a an interesting uh, company that. Uh, I've been tracking on since they launched, and you don't hear. I think that they're sort of quiet, heads down, quiet, and working. But they have, they seem to have quite a bit of traction. But it is interesting that they have so much, so much so in Malaysia that this uh, school system in Malaysia is sort of um, um, investing some money in them. I really like the Schoology guys. I met them, but could never really talk very far because uh, Blackboard's purchase of Illuminate put me in kind of a competitive situation. Mm -hmm. But I'm interested to see where that goes. Um, there's, so there's Schoology, there's Canvas by Instructure. Are there other cloud LMSs that we should be paying close attention to? Um, I think that there are sort of folks that are doing things. Are, I mean, in some ways that the, at the K-12 K level, the LMS doesn't feel like the quite quite the right way to describe it. Um I mean, I, I would say that, you know, I see a lot of, a number of 
uh, startups that are offering services that are really well integrated with Google Apps, for example. So I think of LearnBoost, um, which initially was just a grade book, but now is um, integrated with sort of Google Docs and Google Calendar. And and, and then there's Hapara, which is a, a, a platform or that sort of a, a dashboard and set of tools to help um, make Google Apps work better in schools. And I don't know if, I mean, Edmodo is even also sort of making a gesture in that direction too with, with its offering. I mean, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't begin to call Edmodo an LMS, but they're offering sort of pieces of pieces of that. Are they school management systems? No, not, I mean, some of them are just sort of, some of them are more, you know, how do you, I mean, in the case of Edmodo, it's sort of classroom, a, a social network for your classrooms. Um, but, but it does have some of that grade book, homework assignment, uh, calendaring functionality that a traditional LMS did. Sort of the power school yeah. direction. Yeah. Okay, I'm loving the recommended reading. Really appreciate you doing that. Uh, Dan Meyer talks about math and textbooks. Dana Boyd talks about libraries and um, COPPA. Yes. And whether there really should be anything there. And then there's this We the Web Kids. <laughs> so pick one or two or all three and tell us about them. Well, I thought that uh, I thought that Dana Boyd's piece on COPPA was really interesting. And we've touched on this before. There's so much confusion about what the requirements are around COPPA, SIPA, and FERPA. And I think that people write or, you know, people tend to get confused about what the law really mandates and what's necessary to do in order to, quote, protect kids. And Dana makes a point quite clearly that COPPA isn't something that libraries should have to follow. COPPA is actually about websites collecting the websites that are collecting commercial websites commercial webs exactly commercial websites that are collecting kids information have to have certain uh, disclosure well they can't do it right right i mean i, I think or that's the restriction parent, yeah parent or without parent permission right and, and dana's saying well, libraries they're nonprofits; they don't fall into that category so why are they using COPPA as an excuse to restrict access to children under 13. Right. And I think that, you know, I mean, and I think that, again, libraries, if they take E-rate funding, are required, um, do fall under the jurisdiction of SIPA. But even so, that's still, you know, I mean, I think that there's still like this sort of confusion about any, you know, anyone, anyone that's not quite 13, we need to sort of put all sorts of obstacles to them having access to the web. I actually thought the comments to that article were fascinating as well. And kind of the thoughtful dialogue about parental rights versus uh, child independence and well worth the read. Anything else? Uh, Dan, of course, being Dan. Dan, of course, being Dan. And I did have coffee last week with Dan, which was wonderful. Um, and we we actually, not surprisingly, did we did we did talk quite a bit about about textbooks. And I thought that I thought that Dan's Dan's piece was really important. Thinking about um, again, he's sort of continuing to sort of think through um, think through the Apple's textbook announcement. But the the we the web 
Kids piece I thought was really interesting. And this was a, um, a manifesto um, written by, I believe, a Polish poet and that was translated and shared online. It's been reprinted a couple of places, but it certainly seemed to think about how generationally, perhaps, but I'm not even sure it's a generational thing, how, how, um, how the notion of those of us who've sort of spent some time growing up around the internet, on the internet, um, how we think about um, how we think about the world around us and our connections um, and our culture. And I thought it was a really interesting look at um, the, import- the, importance of, the importance of the web as, as a community. Um, as a, yeah, as a community. Audrey, another great week. I've enjoyed getting feedback from our listeners. Yes. We have quite a few who've emailed us and communicated in, in other ways. And we appreciate you. And, and Audrey, I appreciate you. So thanks so much yeah, for another fascinating week. This is great. Take care, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>